Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Lippin' Sofa. Busy Lippin' Sofa. Busy Lippin' Sofa. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you, given all that's going on in the universe today. <laughs> What's going on? I hadn't noticed. Is something going on? <laughs> Nothing's going on. Exactly. In my bubble, it's all good. I call it Time Out Land. <laughs> time Out Land. I like that. I'm going to steal that. Okay. <laughs> so will you tell us about your experience, strength, and hope today? Yes. And by the way, I love how you say you want to transform the stigma of addiction because see, the thing is that I think that my addiction is a stigma. It's a superpower. And for me, what I, what I experienced was, you know, when I was 23 years old, 17 years ago, um, I'd been kicked out of school. I'd been fired from my job. My car had been repossessed. I didn't have any money at all. I was evicted from my home and I had reached kind of the end of the rope. And I was throwing up blood. My story, my bottom is just like anyone else's. And September 1st, 2002, I woke up um, in rehab, entered recovery, and I've been clean ever since. Mm. I love that. I love that. We call that one tip wonders down here in Florida. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I could, I could spend my entire life trying to understand the difference between me and, like, one of my good friends that's an old-timer that's got – 34 years that had to do this 35 times to be able to make it stick. But um, I'm grateful that, that, that I get to be a one hit wonder. It's the only time I'm not a musician that you're lucky and you're excited to be a one hit wonder. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Cause we don't have to hurt again. Like I learned enough the first time and I had already been to hell. Don't you agree? Yeah, dude, it, it was worse than hell. I don't know what hell is like, but it's not like active addiction. Uh. Well, I love, for one, I love your TED Talk. I thought it was wonderful. I loved it. I love the way that you take those three principles, you know, the practice, rigorous honesty, the surrender to the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. I love that. Thanks. That was, uh, you know, so the the talk is titled Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And, And my fundamental belief is that when we look at the great leaders in our history, they look a lot like active addicts and active addiction, addiction, fixing, managing, controlling. And I think that the great leaders in our future will look a fundamentally different way. They will be authentic and what I call mask free. And I think that the people in this world that are uniquely qualified and that have been rigorously trained to be able to lead in that way is only people in recovery because we have two things that most what we call normies do not have. We have the incentive to practice those principles every day because we don't do it to be good at business or to lead. We do it to live. And number two, we have opportunity. We get to go to places where we can practice those principles with other recovering people that want to live as well. And we can build that like it's muscle memory over time. And you just can't get it in an MBA or a corporate training. You literally have to go spend an hour in a meeting and drink a cup of crappy coffee in order to learn these principles. And that's what makes recovering addicts and, and alcoholics and any whatever, whatever you're recovering from in terms of your addiction, that's what makes them great leaders. And I think that they are going to be differentiated in the future. I love that. I love when you talked about when you went in and you first got vulnerable, when you shared the first time and it wasn't about the show. Like, what is, what is the reaction from everybody going to be? Am I going to get laughter or is everybody going to be so excited about what I just shared because it was so great? Or am I going to be my authentic self and share what's really going on in my life? 
Yeah. I, I think in early recovery, I, I, I was trying to look like I was being vulnerable and transparent. Um, and so I was trying to manage the perception that I was actually doing the deal and I wasn't. And it took, it took pain. I mean, pain is the greatest motivator, especially for those of us in recovery. And I had to really understand how to practice these principles. And I, I did it in that, in that meeting, um, you know, with about six months, uh, I think I had about six months and, and I've been putting on the show. I've been sharing great, comparing my shirts to everybody else's and I was killing it. And I was just like making everybody else look bad because my shirts were so awesome. I had no idea what a Ted talk was and I had no idea I would give one one day, but I thought I was trying to give one. And then I was humbled, man, because like I knew I was going to use it if I didn't share for real. And that's where I learned what rigorous authenticity really is. That's, that's one of the places where I learned that. And I remember, um, this, uh, this hardcore biker with a lot of time came up to me after and he said, you know, I want to talk to you about your share. And I thought he was going to punch me in the face or beat me up or something. Cause I was just a natural conclusion, uh, because I've shared so messy and weak and not impressive. And he was like, that's your best share. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, that's your first real share. That's what we do here. If you don't do that, you're going to die. So I, I actually like that person. I didn't like the mic before. So I'd like to see that guy more. And that was a very different lesson than what the world teaches you. It's amazing. So can I ask you, so if somebody's out there today and they're saying that there's so many people that are unfortunately relapsing and some people that might not have known that they had a problem that now that what's going on in time outland has caused their drinking to take to this next place and they're listening and they're like, how did you finally, so you went to rehab and what, what was, what was the, if there was a catalyst, what happened and what was it like when you went there? Were you willing? And you give us a little share on what that was like. Sure. So for me at the end, you know, I had all these consequences, but I was just running out of options. So I was homeless, but the reason I wasn't living on the street was because uh, I'd asked my buddy if I could crash this place for a weekend and a weekend turned into three months. And I wasn't exactly like the best house guest because when he would go to work, I would steal from him, drink his liquor, uh, eat his food and, and mess his place up and invite strangers over to it. So I was wearing out my welcome and my parents had always been trying to send me to treatment. And I'd always been like, no, I got this. I don't need that. I don't need that. And for me, I frankly didn't go because I was trying to truly find a new way to live. It's because I was throwing up blood. I had no options. I had no money. And the only place that I had that I could stay was about to run out. And so I finally took them up on it. But when I got there, the power, this is the power, but you don't need to go to rehab to find recovery. One of the things that we say sometimes is uh, rehab is a great place, a very expensive place to find out about meetings. But it can be a very helpful tool. And one of the things that's really helpful is identification. And so when I walked in there and I heard all these other alcoholics and addicts sharing my story, I was like, wow, like maybe I really do have a problem. And then when they started talking about the hope of what recovery can bring and people that I could relate to their story would come in and talk about how they transformed their life. I was like, oh, my God, this is my opportunity to completely turn my life around. My goal wasn't to get clean or sober. My goal was to find a new way to live. And I found that in early recovery in rehab. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I entered a 12-step program as soon as I got out. And I knew that 90% of addicts end up in jails, institutions, or death, no matter what they know. So it's not about what rehab teaches you. It's about what you do after 
And one of the biggest things I had to learn was that this isn't a, this isn't a way of life for people that need it. It's not a way of life for people that want it. It's only a way of life for people that do it. And I was desperate enough that I was willing to do it. So if you're out there and you think it's not possible or you're not even sure, give it a chance. Don't think of it as you have to stop using. Think of it as a new way to live. And if you're confused on how to actually get the result that you want, do what you did on the street. Find out what works and just do that over and over and over again. And in this case, there's a ton of people in recovery that have figured out a way to not use and not drink and not do their addiction. And they've been doing it over and over for a few 24s, and they've been able to get the outcome that you want. So give it a shot. And tell me this. Were you nervous about going? Because I have a lot of people that write to me, and they're like, I'm so scared to go to a 12-step meeting. What if I see my neighbor? What if I see my kid's teacher? What if I see whatever, whoever you're going to see? That really causes a lot of fear in people so that they won't take that first step into that church basement or wherever it may be. So that's... So, so to me, this underscores what our real problem is. So like, and I'm not a, a doctor or anything, right? I'm an entrepreneur and a business person now and all that kind of stuff. But I believe that what we have is a problem where we have an obsessive compulsive disorder and we're obsessed with being able to predict how we will feel mm-hmm. and controlling that. And that means that we are willing to experience negative feelings as long as they are predictable over uh, unpredictable experiences. And so for the person that that's scared, so yes, it was incredibly... Dude, I did, I'm from California. I say dude all the time, okay? But I flew all the way from California to a place in not only Tennessee that I didn't even know where Tennessee was on the freaking map. And they gave me a brochure of, like, this place I was going to for transitional living that had, like, uh, cowboys and horses and, like, Dukes of Hazard type people. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I got long hair, like, hoop earrings. I'm just this kid from California. I'm like, I'm, so was I scared to move to Tennessee? Yes. Was I scared to go into a 12-step program and say I am an addict and then have a bunch of strangers, like, actually hear that and then ask them for help? That's the most uncomfortable thing in the world. But here's the really interesting thing. I can relate to, to saying if I go into a meeting, you know, someone will know, uh, someone will find out. It's funny how I would worry about that stuff, but I wasn't worried about how I would rob the people that I love, how I created, mm-hmm. I broke the law, how I hurt people physically, emotionally, and spiritually all the time. I didn't have a problem with that. I was worried about what they would think about me, which shows you just the nature of how self-obsession is at the root of this disease. Mm. Amen to that. You know what? Someone might find out. And if, and if you're part of the solution, dude, if you're part, you would rather they find out that you're doing something about your addiction than continue to find out what you are doing in your addiction. It's so true. It's so true. But it, mean, I don't relate to it. I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't relate to it. I do, but it's just, it shows how ludicrous the disease is. It is. It's so ludicrous, but it's like, how do we give people the hope and the, the, in, the, in, like, the incentive to just do it, like just go and see what it's like. And, um, I think it's really interesting today with, cause obviously you no know, in time outland, no one can go out anywhere. Right. So you can't go to your normal place to see the people that you relate to that you share with in 12 step meetings. So you go to zoom and you have meetings there. And I think it's kind of a cool place for people to decide to go investigate. Right. Cause it's not as scary to go sit behind your computer screen. Is it? No, dude, it's never been easier to go to, to go check out what recovery looks like because you can log in and shut off your video and your microphone and you can be more invisible, which isn't necessarily <laughs> great. But if you want to check out what this is, if you want to hear your story through our mouth, 
you can come to the meeting, you can be completely invisible and just check it out as opposed to going to that basement in the church. Like, I don't know about you, but like, even with 17 years, like if I'm in a new place, I'm always worried I'm going to go into the wrong place of the church. Like yeah. I'm going to walk into like the Bible study <laughs> and be like, I'm here for the addiction stuff. And, and they're all like going to look at me crazy or whatever. And so like, that's the fear. Like what are other people going to think about me? And that's where like, you can only say, you know, your face or your ass. <laughs> you can't say both. And, and so I think zoom and these virtual meetings give you the opportunity to do that. And also one of the really cool things is if somebody is worried about, you know, other people knowing or whatever, um, you can attend a meeting. If you're in California, you can attend a meeting in Australia just as easily as you can. One that's a month, uh, uh, block down the street right now. Mm-hmm. So there's a really, this is a really unique time. It is hard. I think it is hard. There's a, this is hard for people in recovery this time because we are, we are fundamentally wired to isolate due to our disease. And now the entire world is forced to isolate due to a disease. So this mm-hmm. is a hard time. We're wired for this in bad and good ways. But it's never been easier to dip your toe into recovery. And I agree with you there because it, there is that place where you can go to and say, you know what, I'm just going to turn off the video and I'm going to turn off the camera. It's um, it's interesting. I think that because we have this disease that also you can't see, you don't know, you know, obviously you walk into, I mean, it wants to kill you all the time, right? If you really think about alcoholism, it's like you walk into a bar, you walk into a restaurant, it's there. You walk into a wedding, you walk into anything pretty much. You watch a football game and all it is is beer commercials, right? So we, I mean, that's the one thing. It's like we can relate to this, having something out there that wants to kill us that we can't see. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think that that there are such great solutions. I mean, it's important for us to acknowledge and recognize that 80 years ago, there was no solution for an alcoholic or an addict. The result for us was jails, institutions, or death. And now there is a way to live differently. And it is not, the problem is, is that if you say, am I, am, am I a good candidate for the solution? You don't have necessarily, you know, a physical malady that a doctor says, okay, your blood test says this. Unless like for me, it said, he said that my liver enzymes were higher than I was, but, <laughs> but you know, there, you don't, you can't really see it, but even if you're able to, you know, be a functioning uh, per, a, a person in addiction, all you need is a bottom. It doesn't matter what it is. It's whenever you choose to stop digging and you can, you can, you don't need to know how to treat the problem, but you can say, you know what, this isn't working for me and try something different. And you said something that's really important. You said, how can you give someone the incentive? So one of the things that I'm all about is I feel like most people talk about addiction and then they talk about recovery. And when they talk about recovery, they talk about recovery as a way to neutralize the negative and addiction but I want what I want anyone listening right now to consider whether they're in addiction or recovery is that when you enter recovery, thanks to your addiction, you now qualify for a training program in how to be a better leader in business and in your professional life than any MBA or corporate training that exists in the freaking world. Don't think of this just as we're going to stop all the problems. You're going to get equipped with a superpower and a place to develop that superpower that literally only recovering addicts have access to that's going to differentiate you in your professional life. And I'm not saying it's all about your professional life, but we all have to work in order to make money to provide for ourselves. And addicts typically have trouble holding a job, but I know a lot of people that have taken these principles uh, of, uh, and been able to get clean or sober 
And they've been able to truly differentiate themselves in their careers. And so all those addicts out there, like my life is shot. I'm never going to be who I thought I was going to be. Dude, you can maximize your potential in a way that most normal people cannot. If you simply start treating your disease with the, with recovery, with recovery, and you gain the skills that most professionals don't have. And That's I want to get, of, I love that incentive. And tell me this, what, cause a lot of people also think, oh, well, you go to a 12 step program and it's all about God. I mean, is this the cult or something? What is your take on the whole cult? And, and I'm doing air quotes here. Um, yeah. God, what do you feel about that whole thing? How do you um, feel about it? Well, first of all, haters are going to hate, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that's something yeah. you just got to like learn to live with. But, um, here's the deal. Cults don't really let you leave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they create tremendous disincentives. We say, keep going back. It'd be great if you show up at the next meeting. Um, and we don't ask them to give up anything. I mean, there are a lot of cults that are treated in, with a lot more respect in some ways, but I would say it's not a cult. I will, this is what I will say. My wife is a normie and she said this, we do have cult like tendencies in the sense that we have a bunch of people that all identify in a certain way that all have a similar problem and are using a similar solution. We don't seem to have a problem with that when it's um, kids in a classroom being taught by a teacher. Mm. We have a problem with that when it's a 12-step program overcoming alcoholism and addiction. And, and I think it's scary for people in that regard because it's just weird and different, but it's not different than anything else where a bunch of people figured out a new way to do something. So it's not a cult because we don't create disincentives for you to leave. And it's just, it has cult-like tendencies because we are zealots because it does save our life. Like we are going to be evangelistic about this because we know there's a lot of people out there suffering with this disease and we know there's a solution and we want to help them with it. But also the God thing, man, when I, when I went into treatment, I saw the second step on the wall and, and it's, and it had the word higher power in it. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I see what they're trying to do. They're trying to, they're trying to introduce God into the equation. Screw them. And then I looked a little bit further down and then I saw the word God in one of the steps. I'm like, see, I knew it. They're trying to screw me because I was an atheist. And then someone was like, dude, work the steps in order. The first step doesn't talk about a higher power or God or anything like that. It just makes you acknowledge that you're not a God and you're not a higher power. And I was like, okay. And so I did that. And then I got to the second step and then I was like, so what am I supposed to do about this higher power thing now? And they're like, okay, uh, it doesn't say God. Higher power can be anything. You know, there's a saying, it could be the doorknob. I never really understood that, but it can be the, it can actually be a group of recovering people that have figured out how to live. Literally 30 people are more than me. They are a higher power. And so I was like, okay. And then when I finally got to a step that had God in it, what I learned was it's just a convenient placeholder for whatever that means to you. And so for me, I've been raised in a religion that was like used against me. I became an atheist. And so for me, what I did was I just started uh, praying to a higher power. And, and, and I literally was like, I don't even know if this is working. I don't know if this makes any sense. I remember I asked one of my friends, I was like, can my God be a woman? Because it feels like most gods have to be men. Like, can, I, I prefer if my God was a woman. Can my God be a woman? And they were like, sure. I'm like, does my God have to be in a religion? No. Like, we don't care. And I was like, oh, my God. My, my hang-up with the G word is based off of how everybody else in the world has tried to use that word against me, and here all it is is a convenient way of saying something bigger than yourself, and it can mean anything. 
So it's not about religion. It's not about, you don't have to, like, I, I also know atheists that stay clean. They just see the group as their higher power. Like it works. Like it, you, you don't, you don't have to pick a religion or anything like that. It's just, you got to believe that there's something bigger than yourself, whether it's energy, nature, the, the, the group, like whatever the system, you got to believe in something bigger than yourself. And if you don't, and you can consi- then you consider yourself a God in some sort, and then you're going to continue to have problems. Mm. I love that. Oh, I love that explanation. So you went into treatment, you came out, and now I know this all from watching your, your um, TED talk and you got a job at Sam Goody. And yes. was that humbling or what? Yeah, it was, well, it was extremely humbling in a lot of ways because when I was applying for jobs, I had a gap in my resume and so nobody was calling me because I've been in active addiction. Um, but I was in a halfway house and I had five business days to get a job or they were going to kick me out. So I just like applied everywhere. And Sam Goody called me. And for anyone listening, if you're older, Sam Goody's a record store. If you're my age, Sam Goody's a CD store. And if you're younger than me, you're like, what the F is Sam Goody? And what is a CD store? And what are records? Just imagine a brick and mortar Spotify. (laughs) Um, Because some of us remember having to go get music instead of it coming to us. But they called me and I remember asking my sponsor, what am I supposed to do when they they ask me about this three-year gap in my resume? And he said, tell them the truth. And that was probably one of the scariest moments in my entire life, because if I, in my mind, if I told them that I was an addict and that's why I had a gap in my resume and that I'd just gotten out of rehab and I was living in a halfway house, I thought they wouldn't give me the job because they wouldn't trust me and they would judge me. And then I wouldn't be able to stay in a halfway house and I'd be out on the street using and I would probably die. So I was like, that doesn't work. You have to tell me what to tell them. And he said, dude, this is the moment where you get to determine whether or not you're going to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. This is the moment because we do have to stay clean, no matter the stakes, whether they're high or low. I know plenty of addicts that stay clean on the street. You need to go do that. And so when I went into the job interview, I felt so much shame and fear and, and, and pro- proactive regret <laughs> around disclosing my unique situation. And I thought for sure I wouldn't get the job and that the guy would judge me and almost smirk at me. But at the end of the job interview, he did something that really surprised me. And, and he said, when can you start? And that was when I realized that 99% of the worst things that ever happened to me happened only in my head and that I'm holding myself back so greatly by holding back my true story. And in that, and, and I think that, you know, I, I, I do a lot of public speaking and I'll talk to, to, you know, groups of people where there's a lot of people that aren't addicts. And I'll say, even if you're not an addict, everybody can relate to thinking that there's a part of them that is the worst part about them. And everybody does not want to disclose that in a professional environment, let alone in a job interview. And here I had to do just that. And it actually worked out fine. And that destroyed the notion that I have to hide my true self in the professional world. I have to hide the fact that I'm an addict in the professional world. And do you feel like that's the day that, that the shame disappeared? Oh, no, man. I still got shame. I got shame. <laughs> I got shame for days. It just moved. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I carried some shame around being an addict, even though I was able to step into that. I remember after that, I was working at a big corporation. And, you know, for me, alcohol and drugs are my story. And so I, I go, I, I identify as a drug addict, but I mean, it's all the same to me. But one of the things I found myself doing was in the um, interactions at my work, when people were asking me, you know, why did you move here? 
I would tell them that I was an alcoholic instead of a drug addict because I thought that it was actually more desirable to be an alcoholic than a drug addict, <laughs> relatively speaking. That, that tells you how far the shame spiral goes, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like either way, it's not a great thing to disclose if you, if you believe if, if you're believing the shame. And so I had to overcome that for a little period of time, but by about three or four years clean for me, um, with, without using and with being really open about being in recovery, I started to realize that it, not only did I not have to have any shame and I stopped feeling the shame, that it started differentiating me like professionally and personally. And it made me somebody that people wanted to be around and to follow. And it gave them hope because everybody's got an addict in their life. Um, but also the principles that I was operating by were different and counterintuitive to what they were experiencing and so what I've learned is that it's the best thing. Like the first thing I want to do now is I want to tell you that I'm an addict. Like that's what I want to do. That's the most important thing you could ever know about me. And so the shame for being an addict is gone, um, which is helpful when you've had some, you know, professional success and all that stuff. But I go back to that moment in Sam Goody where I didn't know that it was going to be an advantage or a positive, And I did it anyway. And what I'll tell you is, yes, I've had external success since that moment. But in that moment, I felt internal success because I didn't hide who I was. Oh, that's the best part of addiction. You get to be who you really are once you put up your hand. You say, I quit. I waved the white flag. It beat me. I want a different life. I get to be who I really am. And it takes Most so much. Most people don't know how to do that. No, it's hard, right? I think that yeah. that, guy, that first guy coming up to you in the Harley outfit was like the one that just said, it's okay to be you, Mike. I like you. I want to hear what you really have to say. And you know what? Um, I think that there's a lot of people out there saying that to everybody, but here's what he also said. You will effing die if you don't do this. <laughs> and, and that gave me the extra incentive to do it. So I did it first to survive, and then I didn't realize that it would allow me to thrive. But like, yes, to be able to walk into a place where they don't only tell you to be yourself, they tell you that it's the only way you're going to be able to recover from this disease. It becomes really liberating. Like I tell people all the time that I walk around, even with 17 years clean, I walk around every day with a loaded gun pointed at my head, and it gives me the excuse and the permission to prioritize things that other people are scared to. Mm. And what, very is healthy that, pressure. and so what it, is that, what, what is your part? Like every day, what do you, do, I know I, well, at least from the Ted talk, you said you don't really, do you go to meetings every day or do you go once a week? How often do you go? Uh, well, so before, um, the timeout, I would go, uh, <laughs> twice a week. Um, I've got sponsees, I got a sponsor, I do service, that kind of thing. Um, but since the timeout, I've had to try to up it to three because as, as much as I said that the virtual meetings are great for newcomers, um, I miss like the meeting after the meeting or the meeting before the meeting or being the small talk with the people that I love or being able to talk about something that happened in the meeting after all that kind of stuff. And so I've noticed that I need to step up my virtual meeting attendance to kind of achieve a similar level of uh, recovery feeling um, in this climate. So I, I, I try to do three virtual meetings a week right now, but usually it's like one or two. But like in early recovery, it was, you know, almost every day. And I want to see, will you talk about your three, the three practices, the, the, the practice of rigorous honesty and the surrender of out to the outcome and the, do the uncomfortable work? Will you talk about those three keys? Back yeah. So 
So here's the thing there. And, and this is going to get potentially dorky from a business perspective, but everybody's going to relate to this. So there are four things that are holding back every single individual team and organization in the world Four practices saying yes. When you could say no, hiding a weakness, avoiding difficult conversations and holding back your unique perspective. Leaders at every level within organizations are doing these four things. And these are the things that kill addicts. It's also the things that we learn how to do in recovery. So the principles of practicing rigorous authenticity, surrendering the outcome and doing uncomfortable work, they go together as a system. And all this is, is my way of codifying what happens when you as a recovering person apply your recovery to a professional situation. And so what happens is in a professional situation, there's usually an action that's going to be uh, true to us in nature. So when I was at the, in, in, in a big corporate environment, most people, like when they were in a room with the boss, they wouldn't say, I don't know, or challenge the boss, right? And the boss asked them to do a project, they would say yes, instead of say no. And if the boss said, are you good at this? They would say, yes, I'm great at this, even if they sucked at it. And if they wanted to raise with the boss, they would avoid that difficult conversation with the boss. But because I had to practice the principles of recovery in all my affairs, I said no, I sh- and that saved me time. I shared my weaknesses, which made me grow and connect with others. I had difficult conversations, which made me better at negotiation and also made me better at building relationships. And I didn't hold back my unique perspective, which made my leaders love me because I could spot blind spots or unlock innovation. And so in eight years, I went from this you know, temp at a kiosk in a mall to a corporate manager with a $250 million P&L and 19 direct reports as a, you know, drug addict with no college degree, not because I was special and I had connections or whatever, but because I was practicing those three principles at work as an official practice. And one of the challenges that recovering people have, I think, is even though we teach practice these principles in all our affairs, for some reason, most of the recovering people that I talk to think that that stops at work and that they can't embrace the freedom of living this way to the true level that they do in the rooms out in the professional world, because that's a normie's world. And the boss doesn't understand. I can't just be authentic. I can't just surrender the outcome. I, I can't do any of that. But the truth is, is that that's actually going to differentiate you. And it did me. And then I eventually left that, that company. I, I founded my own company. And then I found that building an entire company on those principles gives you a tremendous competitive advantage. It's uh, Mike, you're such an inspiration. I have to tell you that you are such an inspiration. I'm so, for one, I'm so glad I met you. I'm so glad you reached out to me. And, um, I love the principles that you talk about. And it's so true. Cause if I'm not honest with everybody, then how can I be honest with myself? Right. Yeah. I'm, well, you lose a tremendous amount of energy too. Like, so if you practice rigorous authenticity and you actually say, I'm going to be true to myself in word and action, no matter what. It saves you a lot of time and energy. If you surrender the outcome, it saves you a lot of time and energy. And that's why people in recovery are so good at doing uncomfortable work. But in the workplace, we get taught how to do hard work and smart work. That's intellectual and physical, but uncomfortable work is emotional. We've all seen someone doing eight hours of smart or hard work because they were avoiding five minutes of uncomfortable work. And we are uniquely equipped to do that in a way that gives us, I mean, I just keep saying it, a competitive advantage. I'm not all about business, by the way, for what it's worth. Like, 
I could know nothing about business and never have any experience in it and just be so grateful I'm a recovering person. But I really like to harp on this thing because I don't hear that message enough myself personally. And it's so relevant to most people's situations. And most people think that they can't actually use their um, recovery as a, as a business skill. Well, you know, so many people don't even think they're going to have a life after they come in. You know, you think there's not going to be any more fun. I'm not going to have anything. I'm just going to be living <laughs> yeah. in my house and not even talking to anybody. I'm just going to be a loser sitting in there with a bunch of trolls, right? That's what we all, that's what I thought when I was going to, you know, when I was going to surrender, right? Same here. I mean, 100%. What I didn't realize was I needed to have all that quote unquote fun to make up for how shitty I felt. And today we have this life that's like beyond what we could ever imagine. And even during time outland, it's like, it's all okay. Life is good. I've got gratitude today. Absolutely. Like all my problems are leaf in the pool problems. I could be out there on the street trying to hustle or dead. Um, I could hate myself. I could look at myself in the mirror and say, I don't know who that is anymore. I could be completely isolated from all the people I love, but instead I'm managing through this with a set of principles that helps me figure out how to respond to the challenges. I've got a bunch of people that are just like me that understand what it's like to be, uh, you know, an addict in a pandemic and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard goings for a lot of people, but you know, the thing that I hear um, in the virtual meetings right now is there's a lot of people going through a lot of hard stuff. And they are just so grateful that they are able to do that in a recovery community rather than trying to navigate this mess on their own. Mm -hmm. And so if you're out there, man, and you're in active addiction, come just so you don't have to navigate this mess on your own. Amen to that. Oh, my gosh. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. I so appreciate it. Your message is wonderful. It's inspiring. I loved it. I love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for carrying the message. Thank you. And until next time, everybody, keep getting busy living sober. Take care, Mike. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.